Hey, what's going on, everyone? This is King Williams, and you are listening to the Neighborhood Watch podcast. A couple quick things. Uh, one, as some of you all may know, um, the podcast has now been split. So the Neighborhood Watch is going to be focused on really urbanism in Atlanta. So, you know, pretty straightforward urbanism, the city of urban spaces, urban life, urban culture, design, buildings, and all of that. Um, in Atlanta, obviously, I'm in Atlanta. I love it. And it's a great place to learn about the movers and shakers in Atlanta. And also people who are just doing things who may be um, off the radar. And so that's going to stay. The Neighborhood Watch still exists. Uh, the Neighborhood Watch will be moving in February to a weekly format and it will be out every Wednesday. So every Wednesday you will hear a Neighborhood Watch podcast episode. So and it will take the form of two things. With those episodes, some will be just straight interviews. Like we have a few of those that you guys are going to get to hear over the spring that just have never come out. And then the other end later on this year will be more story driven. So expect a few short stories. Um, if you like stuff like the daily and those kind of produce stories, I think you'll like those. So get ready for that. And then the other is the King Williams podcast, which is a podcast that I have that is more in support of the newsletter that I do. And also a new show that I have coming on a local streaming service called the local plus. And what that is, that is going to be essentially a supplement to both of those going to feature interviews it's going to feature a lot more about his story and a lot more things that are outside the world of urbanism and atlanta so pretty straightforward and over time i think this time next year hopefully you guys will see the difference so again the neighborhood watch will be about atlanta and urbanism so urbanism in atlanta for the most part um one of those two things the king williams podcast will be about history it will be about culture it will be about topical news it will be in support of the king williams show which is about the same thing and also my newsletter, I am kingwilliams.substack.com, S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K.com. Thank you once again uh, for everyone who's already subscribed. If you haven't already, please do. If you like this podcast and you want to support, please, uh, you can support me at Patreon at patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash King. I think it's I am King Williams. Ooh, I almost messed that up. So patreon.com slash I am King Williams. And so in this interview, um, we're going to talk to three people in a real estate world of Atlanta. These are three people who are doing it really well in the black uh, real estate world, but also just in general Atlanta. And so I want to say that because I'm talking to first Davon Reeves. She is one of the youngest black hotel owners in the country. Um, she owns now, I think at the time of the interview, she only owned one hotel. Uh, but now I think she's on her second and third and she's still trying to get more. Um, she has a goal um, over the course of her, her young life to produce over 200 black hotel owners. She is someone who started off um, really, really just like most people do, just kind of wind up in a job and then she really loved it. And so now she's gone from everything from the girl at the front desk to now the woman owning the hotel. And so that's a great journey. I'm also talking to Cedric Matheny of T. Dallas Smith. Um, he goes by Cedric Michael, if you guys get a chance to see him. Um, T. Dallas Smith is one of the most successful commercial black real estate firms in the country. And in this interview in particular, we actually talked to Cedric back at the start of the pandemic. And that interview is also on YouTube and um, in podcast form for this one. So I think you should listen to that one and watch it as well. Maybe share it to a friend. Um, and this one as well is cool. Cedric actually, his company, T. Dallas Smith, sponsored the, the production, the video production of this, uh, which is also on YouTube, this interview. And then I'm talking to Patrick Henderson of PLH Homes. Patrick is one of the few black people in Atlanta who are doing high end modern housing. And so he's done everything from homes of upward of half a million to a million dollars or more per year. 
Um, at this point in time, also when we talked, he had just, I think, finished one of his most recent homes um, that was a million dollar home built on spec. And so that's a big, a, a big thing, especially for black people in real estate here in Atlanta. You just don't see that often enough, especially from the builder side of it. And so these are three people. They took out some time. We had 45 minutes and we had a, a chance to talk a bit. So I really hope you enjoy it. And if you like and review it, please like and wet like and share wherever you heard this podcast and i know i'm rambling on and on and on but let's get to the interview so uh again happy to be here again uh you know happy to share the share, share with my friend patrick who i've been known for a long time and i just met this beautiful young lady right here as well uh, who's also a georgia state alum so so go panthers <laughs> All right. And our last guest is a, a new friend of the podcast. We have Patrick Henderson here. Patrick is one of the few, I'm not going to say few, but he's one of the leaders um, in high-end residential real estate in Atlanta. And it's very unusual, to be honest, to see someone who is black in that space. And so um, I'm glad that Patrick took some time out today to come and talk to us because he's going to give us a different vantage point on what it means to be someone who's working in high-end residential development in Atlanta. So, Patrick, can you tell people what you do? Sure. My name is Patrick Henderson. I work in the high-end modern uh, real estate market here in the Atlanta area. Um, we do modern development homes um, in the metro area and some of the outskirts as well. So thank you for allowing me to be here. All right. Now, thank you all for doing this. And so um, the reason why, you know, the elephant in the room is COVID is the reason why a lot of us have been distant from everyone. And in particular, COVID has affected all of our businesses. But for you in particular, Davon, somebody who's in hospitality, just how has COVID been for you on that side? Because you do a lot of work in hospitality. And for a lot of people, COVID has shut down their business completely. So what has been COVID been like for you over the last 15 months? So over the last, my, my story during COVID is a little different. Um, and the reason why it's different because I actually acquired a hotel during COVID. Um, so sometimes some people actually equate uh, the hospitality or hotel industry during to the real estate industry uh, in 2008, right? Um, there are a lot of hotels that, uh, uh, that had to close down. Um, there are a lot of hotels that occupancy levels like we're like, you know, at unforeseen levels below 20%, 30%, And um, some hotel owners essentially, even seasoned hotel owners had to essentially give their hotels back to the bank. And um, we came across a great opportunity to actually acquire property. Um, so again, story's a little different. Now, the other parts of the industry didn't have that great time, right? Uh, Again, a lot of hotels closed, a lot of restaurants had to close, um, a lot of business models had to pivot. Um, even a lot of major hotels in downtown Atlanta had to close. Um, hotels, iconic hotels had to close. Even my hotel, the Hyatt Regency Atlanta, or my former hotel had to close down. That's one of the largest, second largest hotels um, in Atlanta. The Merritt Marquis in Atlanta, that stayed open. Um, but can you imagine a hotel over 1,600 rooms, you know, um, reaching occupancy levels, which is below, you know, 20%. And so what that means for those who don't understand, just give you an example. If you have a hotel that's 100 rooms and uh, 50 rooms or those are occupied, that's 50%. So can you imagine if a big box hotel or a larger hotel that's 1,600, 1,200 rooms, they can't stay open, you know, it make it takes more to keep it open. So that's why they just have to keep it closed because a lot of business and a lot of these, uh, Atlanta is a convention market, right? 
Um, and so a lot, it was a lot of corporate travel. And so a lot of these hotels had to, to, to close down or a lot of business were closed off the books because this was worse than the, than the recession of 2008. And I actually, you know, was working even in school um, during the recession in 2008. And hotel, it was bad, but it wasn't as bad as this, right? Like I said before, hotels were closing, corporate business was stopping because the first thing, typically what happens when it's an economic downturn, the first thing that's cut is business travel. That's the first thing, right? Corporate, first thing that's cut. And so they can't travel, they can't, and that's what literally brings a lot of business to the hotels in Atlanta. So essentially it decimated uh, the industry and then therefore people can't travel. It was a lockdown, people couldn't eat in restaurants, right? They couldn't eat inside, they had to do a lot of uh, to-go orders and some restaurants, it didn't make sense from a cost perspective to even do to-go orders, so they had to close down. And so now fast forward, you know, 15, 18 months later, you know, hotels are now reopening. Um, uh, this past weekend, uh, uh, the hotel industry in Atlanta uh, the rates were north of $200 a night, which is great for the industry. It's bad for consumers. I'm sure people don't want to pay that. Uh, but from a hotel year, that's, that, that, that's good. And we were, and some of the hotels were sold out. You cannot find a room in Atlanta because uh, so, uh, it was sold out last weekend because of the fight. Um, but all, the point I'm trying to make is, is that the leisure market is coming back, meaning for those who don't know what leisure is, that means that, you know, people are just traveling if they want to go see the aquarium or if they just want to visit the city. So leisure is starting to come back. We're still missing that corporate business again because business travelers aren't really traveling as much. Um, but as far as the COVID, I mean, just like any other industries, but it definitely hurt the hospitality industry the most. Um, hospitality is responsible for one out of the four jobs, um, and excuse me, one out of the eight jobs in the economy. And during COVID, we lost over 500,000 jobs. And now, you know, folks who were eating at restaurants and staying at hotels, they're not able to get that same level of service that they received pr prior to COVID. And that's because it's very hard for folks to, to come back to work. Some folks are, um, you know, they're receiving unemployment business benefits and which is higher than a lot of costs. Um, or they're just unable to find jobs. So again, travel is back. The bad news is we can't find employees uh, to help to meet the, the demand, uh, not only in restaurants, but in hotels as well. Okay, and thank you for that. And so then Cedric, I wanna ask you in particular, um, you coming from the commercial real estate world, how has COVID affected your business over the last 15 months? Sure, sure, I'll, so I'll, I'll answer it in a, in a form of a story. Uh, I think uh, the last time I was on Watch the Hood, it was like, we were just talking about this. Uh, it was two weeks before COVID actually hit and we was literally having this podcast and two weeks later COVID hit. Um, for our particular business, uh, business didn't stop, it ramped up. Uh, particularly because what our, one of our largest clients, Microsoft, uh, we were in the, really in the heat of getting the deal done, bringing them here to Atlanta. Um, and we ended up getting that deal done in May of 2020, right in the midst of COVID. And it was the largest deal in the, done in the United States, uh, 523,000 square feet uh, office here in Atlantic Station. And then we turned around and didn't purchase 90 acres for them on the west side of Atlanta, all during COVID. So from my experience is a little different than I guess my peers, because um, everybody's family and personal situation was different. It affected people differently. <laughs> but for T. Dow Smith, the company, we just, we really ramped up, we worked. And we were fortunate, we were really fortunate that um, COVID didn't stop 
um, a company like Microsoft from coming to Atlanta because a lot of companies paused. And I got a lot of peers in the industry that just was like, all the deals, I was, I was 90% done with a deal, and it just basically moved away from the table because we didn't know what this COVID was going to do uh, for their business. So we, that, that definitely kind of kept us uneasy, but we just stayed focused and, and, and just kind of just listened to our client and got the deal done. Um, in addition to that, um, you know, we had other clients that were coming to us for advice. Um, large corporations asking us, hey, what are you guys seeing? How, what, what does the end look like? You know, in the office market or industrial market, uh, you know, what is the future works work space is going to work uh, going forward? And, and we're still having those conversations. Uh, there are some companies that are now making decisions uh, and doing kind of hybrid work schedules where people are coming in the office two or three days a week. Some not at all. Um, so that's still in process. So what's what's changed in our industry for COVID? Not only am I doing real estate, commercial real estate work. Um, we're kind of stepping into HR a little bit uh, and, and, and advising on how uh, companies, you know, manage their work, their workforce. You know, who who stays, what positions are in the office, what positions are at home. You know, is there medical situations where, you know, it causes them to stay at home and not be around folks. So it's, it's a lot of that going on. Um, so for us, I mean, COVID um we picked up some more business <laughs> during COVID so again it, we're just we just were blessed during COVID um and it was kind of a weird situation to be in kind of seeing the turmoil going on because not only did you have COVID and you know I want to bring this up but you know you had the situation <laughs> that everybody just heard about you know the conviction of uh Derek Ch Chauvin with, with with George Floyd and everything that happened in social unrest so 2020 was a very unique year all around across the board um and it had and, and i think that overall um we're going to come out better for it if that makes sense i think we're, we're coming into a new way of life so to speak and 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 cognizance of our our, our surroundings and people and so it's i'm just interested i'm excited i'm excited about what's, what's going on and what's happening so uh that's my take on COVID. okay and then patrick for you in particular while you're in residential real estate, you're in the high end of it. And so there's been a lot of stories about what's been happening in the residential space, but what's been happening for you and your business as it relates to COVID? Sure. So with the pandemic that took place, our business from a residential real estate perspective has, you know, grown leaps and bounds. You know, more people are spending more time at home as opposed to being, you know, away from their home and their establishment. So even from the high end residential market, you know, people are doing things to their houses that they just put off from doing previously. So you have people now really concentrating on that outdoor living space um, where we're talking about pools being done, large gazebos, um, lanai's, things of that nature. So the market has grown. We've had an increase of people trying to buy new houses. So we're doing a lot of new construction projects and it has, it hasn't slowed down. I don't see it slowing down anytime soon. Um, the adverse effect to that though, has been dealing with the pricing, you know, pricing for materials, um, availability of materials, even from the standpoint of availability of labor, because everybody is just busy. Um, a lot of the factories where we get our materials from are, you know, had to do a cutbacks because people just weren't coming in. And so it has taken longer for materials to, you know, be developed in factories um, where you may had window orders that could take 
four to six weeks, you know, you're up to 90 days. Um, in, in that case, in terms of getting materials from windows, uh, concrete, um, there's rationing out a concrete right now. Lumber prices are through the roof. So the cost to build those houses are more, but more more people are taking that cash flow and actually putting it into their homes. Okay. And I think the through line between between all three of these stories are you guys have managed to have success during the pandemic, which is a rare occurrence, and you managed to do it in Atlanta. And so I want to ask all three of you is, has being in Atlanta been an advantageous thing to have as regards to everything, especially with your businesses and especially during COVID? Has being in Atlanta been an advantage to having the success that you've had so far? Wow, that's a great question. Well, my hotel that we acquire is in Oklahoma, so it's not in Atlanta. But I will say the relationships that I formed, Georgia State, um, I actually got the deal, came across the deal from a connection that I made while I was at Georgia State. So even though the deal necessarily isn't in Atlanta, um, the investors that I actually uh, brought in, they're not from Atlanta because um, everything was done virtual. Right. So as Cedric mentioned before, you know, a lot of the deals, you know, during COVID, they were pretty much 85 to 90 percent, you know, almost to completion to, to or get declared to close. And COVID pretty much stopped it. Right. Like, uh, no, the market is too uncertain. So but as far as me being in Atlanta, it didn't really change anything. I became more still. I became more still. Um, I have a two year old, so I was able to be more present. Um, with, with him, um, I was able to, to really, uh, like I said, become more still and become just with some of the most amazing ideas and initiatives uh, that I developed and just building and maintaining relationships that I built during Atlanta and keeping those relationships. Because a lot of times with people, what they did during COVID, they didn't really deal with people right meaning they didn't because it was either they dealt with people or they didn't virtually so i was able to build more relationships virtually um, maintain the relationships that i did have in person virtually um but being in atlanta it it, it didn't it, it didn't make a break i'm glad that i was in atlanta because i was home and i had friends and family um but again that relationship if i wouldn't have been in atlanta meaning if i didn't go to georgia state university yeah so go panthers shout out um if i didn't go to georgia state university um and build those relationships that i did have um within the hospitality community i probably wouldn't be sitting here uh, talking to you today about acquiring a property um, during COVID when a lot of other peoples couldn't get the clear to close to actually acquire a hotel. And for fellas, anything you want to add to that? Yeah, I'll add. I think um, Atlanta, being in Atlanta, was very important. Um, you know, obviously, for my, my, having a client like Microsoft was very important. Um, and I always tell folks Atlanta is a very unique place compared to your other major MSAs in the United States. Uh, there's no other place like Atlanta in terms of diversity, uh, particularly black folk um, in different areas and walks of life uh, from a political standpoint, from a wealth standpoint, from um, just a business community. Uh, Atlanta's very unique um, uh, in, in terms of just the people of color that are doing things and the relationships that, that, that you have that black folks can build here in Atlanta in my opinion, are just superior to other metro cities around the United States. And I've been to a lot of them, and I've always come, to, come back home to the same thing. It was like, man, they ain't doing it like Atlanta. 
from our culture to the relationships. Like you, literally, you can come here. You know, it, it, our relationships help bring Microsoft here. You know, our relationships with the state, relationships with the city, relationships in the business community and and and, and the local communities. We have relationships there with people that look like us. Um, that understood what we were trying to do and helped us kind of get things across the goal line. Um, so Atlanta was very important last year for me. Patrick? In my market, uh, Atlanta has been, you know, it's been very advantageous being here. I'm a native of California, and what I found is, is that a lot of my peers, um, not only from California, but all across the country, have moved here to the Atlanta area. And with that being said, they're looking for homes. And so more and more... People have said that they wanted to relocate here. They are building these, you know, mega mansions, which is similar to what they would pay, you know, for in California, They're paying a fraction of the cost here. And so it made sense for that to take place. So, you know, what I'm finding is a lot of people coming in from California, D.C., New York, even up coming up from Florida. And we've been able to service that clientele, um, as well as those who are just native from Georgia and really being able to give them something that will be long lasting. So it's been great. You also have the movie industry that is here um, and, you know. People are looking for places to get out of the mainstream studios to do filming, and they're coming to a lot of our homes that we're doing development on. And so it has just been a very great time for us from a, a residential real estate perspective. Well, no, I'm glad you all have had the success, and I'm glad Atlanta has helped and contributed to that. But there is another side of Atlanta that I do want to ask you all about, which is there's two things in particular that have risen a lot over COVID. Um, one of which is the topic of gentrification, and the other one is affordable housing. And so I want to first start with the conversation about affordable housing because it, it's a very different conversation in many ways than the one about gentrification. And so for all of you, um, one of the things a lot of people are asking about Atlanta going forward is, is Atlanta affordable? And if it's not, why is it not affordable? And so I wanna start with Patrick first on this one, um, which is, can you explain from a, a developer side why a house may not be affordable? And I know that's not necessarily your your avenue, but can you explain more about the Absolutely. developer side of the affordable housing debate? So right now, there's an abundance need of affordable housing here in the Atlanta market. However, the cost to develop such a product right now is becoming astronomical. When you're talking about, you know, the materials cost from the lumber to the concrete, it's even gone down to sheetrock as well as, you know, gutters. Um, the cost is, you know, doubled and tripled in some cases. And so building an affordable product um, is not always able to be done unless you're doing from a mass production perspective. You have your large builders who are doing your mass production, so therefore they can spread that cost across multiple um, builds. And so I do see that there is a, a space there, but the cost can be prohibitive in some cases for that. Okay, and so I'm gonna open up for, um, for both of you, but I wanna actually go with Devon next because a lot of people are saying that maybe Airbnb in particular is not only affecting the hotel industry, but is also affecting our affordable housing stock. So I wanna start with you, Devon, first, and I'll go back to you, Patrick. How has Airbnb affected your business? And then Patrick, on your end as well. Before I answer the Airbnb, you mentioned about you know affordable housing and making affordable. 10 year, like, so I moved to Boston from Atlanta in I think 2000, 15, I believe 2014, and it was still relatively affordable. When I came back in 2017, it was like, I mean, like the prices went sky high, but 
Patrick just talked about folks moving from New York, Chicago, Florida, California, where those prices, Boston, where those prices were typically a lot higher, right? Cost of living is a lot higher. So it was more affordable to come to Atlanta. So now it's more of a demand and now we can increase prices because before Atlanta was the place to come. You know, people would either retire from up north or they, you know, come here to move and they're able to get, you know, a larger house for a fraction of the cost of what they're paying for in other cities, which is essentially driving up the cost, right? So that's one thing. And the thing about the second point as far as for Airbnb, um, so Airbnb is definitely a disruptor to the hospitality industry. That's, that, I mean, that's just, they're, they're, they're even evaluated more than I think three of the major hotel companies combined, but yet they have no buildings that they actually own, right? There's more of a platform. Um, so they definitely, it's a, it's a threat, but it's more so, it's a threat depending on the community, right? So where my hotel is in Oklahoma, Airbnb or short-term rental is not necessarily a threat, right? Because it's, people aren't really traveling to, for one, Uber and Lyft aren't even available in El Reno, right? So typically, you know, no one's really traveling there for leisure. They're just doing it for work and they're gonna stay at a hotel. Um, but you have markets like Atlanta, San Francisco, New York, who people, that the, the hotel rooms are a little bit higher, or people, they want that experience. So some folks, you know, it makes more sense if they have a family or if they want to create an experience, they want to bring a private chef, they may not be able to do that at a hotel. So they possibly can do that at an Airbnb. But as far as Airbnb, as far as the, the cost, um, or the next, the ne going back to the affordable housing, or that's taken away from affordable housing because people, they can't, they want to have that experience. So they build, some, they want to buy a modern build right and so they want to either rent it out or turn it into an airbnb because they're able to one they want to make a profit of course but two they want to uh they want to to create that experience but then again that's taken away from affordable housing for someone who could necessarily come in and, and rent it at affordable affordable price um so hopefully that answers the question i mean hospitality as far as with 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 airbnb afford and affordable housing is just more so um airbnb like i said is, is here to stay but as far as the it's just giving another experience and it's just taken away from the cost so as far as the the the, the conversation is just the more so dependent on the market right and so now there's legislation that's in place um because uh to make sure that airbnb um, as far as, you know, any regulations that they have or any taxes that they have compared, because hotels, of course, were upset about it. So, but as far as, you know, my opinion, it's not necessarily too much of a threat as it was before. It's just a threat like a, an online agency is just something that is just here to stay in the hospitality industry. We just deal with it, work together, because hotel, some hotels are even using Airbnb to market their rooms. All right, so Patrick, I want to ask you in particular, how the Airbnb conversation. So how does that affect affordable housing? So when you look at the whole thing versus hotels versus Airbnb, the affordable housing from an Airbnb perspective, there's a way to do it. Um, Again, most investors or most people now are taking their housing and instead of doing that long-term rental, they're putting it on Airbnb. However, 
they can utilize it as a way to share or split some of the money that they would pay to a mortgage company or a rental. So therefore, if you have a three bedroom or four bedroom or what have you, they can stay in part of the house while they're still renting portions of that out. So even from a high end market, what I'm finding is, is that people are taking their personal home and they're renting out rooms, they're renting out the garage that they've converted into a room, et cetera. So there's a way to kind of split that. So the same thing can happen in the affordable housing market. People can take that three bedroom house and during the weekends, they can rent it out as an Airbnb. So there's a ways of doing anything. You just have to be creative in order to make it happen. Um, what I have found though is, is that people are no longer doing, well, it's case by case, obviously, but a lot of people are opting to go to Airbnb as opposed to your long-term rentals because with the moratorium, people are not having to pay, you know, their rent. And so therefore, you as a homeowner still have to pay that to the mortgage company. And so that's why people have transitioned over to that short-term rental because they know that they can still get their money in order to make that payment, essentially. And so now um, I want to ask Cedric your thoughts on affordable housing. Sure, sure. So uh, affordable housing, I have a few things. Um, and I'm going to go back to what you what you asked about Atlanta. Atlanta is, uh, Metro Atlanta encompasses 29 counties that go outside, that, that go outside the 25 perimeter. That's, that's really Metro Atlanta. So when I think about affordable housing, I think about Metro Atlanta. Um, if you're in the city core, obviously, prices are going to be a little bit higher. But as you move out to the suburbs, depending on where you're going, the housing get a little cheaper. So if you're if you're a, if you're a person or with a family or whatever the case may be, and you're looking for affordable housing, you have a small family. The trend typically is if I have small kids, I'm probably going to move to the suburbs just because of the school systems and the houses are bigger and they're just they're just cheaper. So I think the affordable housing uh, problem, typically when we talk about it, we talk about really a small core of the city. If you really think about it from a square mile standpoint. The conversation is really around kind of anything inside the 285 perimeter in terms of Atlanta. So that's one thing. The, the other thing is when I think about affordable housing, I think about twofold. You have affordability of homes and you have affordable housing. Affordable housing meaning for rent product, affordability meaning for, for purchase product, right? And, and I feel like even though in this market, and as he can attest to, it's on fire right now. You know, people are, are literally bidding on homes. Uh, in order to acquire homes, um, and that's due to the supply. There's a very low shortage of supply of homes right now, which is affecting the affordability of homes. Um, and that's just simple economics, it's supply and demand. Um, and that's not something that could be fixed with policies alone. It, 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 we need more people like Patrick to build more homes to get more supply out there. Um, and, and, and the problem with getting the supply out there, back to Patrick's point, is the cost. You know, so in order to make the numbers work, you're going to have to do large scale, multi, uh, affordable housing uh, development. So I don't know if you remember back in like the late 90s, early 2000s, there was a lot of um, spec homes that were built like in Clayton County. Um, and, and these are these, and I call them stick homes because they're, they're, the materials that they're using, these homes are, you know, they're stick. I mean, they, they, they can build these homes little in like what, you would tell me like four or five months, eight right. months. And you know, and they're siding houses. You know, they're on a concrete slab. Those houses are very easily easy to build. But in order to make the numbers work, you got to you got to it's, it's got to be a large scale development, and you got to sell the parcels. So there's a lot of strategies around how to do it. 
Um, but again, it, it, the numbers have to make sense because um, you know the pro you, you, and, you, and just, the numbers have to make sense. So that's that's that. And then the question about Airbnb, who's also a client of ours, uh, trying to get to Atlanta. So we're helping them out with that as well. Um, to his point. I look at Airbnb as a business opportunity for folks that are trying to invest in real estate. And that's another, I guess, variable of what's affecting affordable housing. And it'll probably be a good segue to the next, we're talking about gentrification. Because um, you have a lot of investors that are buying houses for rent, uh, for Airbnbs, or for, for flips. You know, my personal opinion is uh, house flippers, you have, when you have a lot of house flippers, that drives up price drives up the price, um, especially in a market like today's market where there's a big demand for housing, you know, there, there's, a, there's big wide margins and it also causes uh, a little concern for me, um, you know, long term. So th those are kind of my two cents there. Right. And so you, you kind of went into the gentrification uh, part of it. And we had a great interview the first time about this, about gentrification in Atlanta. And so I want to start with you first because we started about it. My question is going to be a little different from you than it is from the other two, which is, Based on what we've talked about so far, is there a real solution to gentrification in Atlanta going forward? Is there a real solution to gentrification? That's, that's, that is a loaded question. Um, there is not a real solution. There's many solutions, um, depending on the circumstances. That's how I answer that question. And, and, and the answer really, it depends on what's going on in the market. Right. Um, like, for example, I, 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 Microsoft acquired 90 acres in Quarry Yards. When that news hits the street, the first people that's going to gobble up real estate are investors. OK, from all walks of life. You got big hedge funds involved in the game now. Institutional players are in, the, in the, they're acquiring a lots of residential properties. Me, you know, uh, Patrick and, and Ms. Reese here, we don't have the kind of money as an institutional investor. We can't compete with that kind of money. You know what I mean? We're, we're not competing with, with institutional investors buying property. Um, that's an issue. However, I think it's a balanced approach. Uh, for an example, if there's an old lady that li that's been in the community for 20, 30 years, has owned their property, um, obviously, property taxes w will go up. I think there should be some. That's a policy discussion. There should be some policy in place where that individual's tax, property taxes are frozen for a period of years, or whatever the case may be, or, or, or forgiven. However, they want to do it, they should not be displaced based on property taxes. I just I strongly believe that. Um, now, on the flip side of that, if you got you know some homeowners that are just they're not being responsible homeowners, which you have a lot of those. Um, they're just not responsible homeowners, but they, they see activity happening now, and all of a sudden now they want to say, well, they're, trying, they're pushing out the community when you weren't really trying to be in the community in the first place. So there's, there's, there's a lot of different narratives that are happening uh, all at once, and there isn't a one-size solution for everybody, but I think the number one solution, in my opinion, is education. It's educating the community members about what's going on, you know, what's happening, how can you take an advantage of this situation economically? Because one thing is for sure, when you invest in real estate, you want to return, even as a homeowner. So if, you, if your home increased 100%, now you got $100,000, $200,000 in equity, the, 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 now the question is, what are your options? Now you have options that you didn't have before. 
So whether you're going to sell it, take your money, go do something else, go whatever. You want to retire, or do you want to take the money, buy your next door neighbor's home? You know, now you got an investment business. I mean, there's there's so much. The, the, the conversation I feel like is more financial literacy in the community uh, of how do you take advantage of gentrification rather than the cons of gentrification, because the real business people take advantage of it and they, they and they take advantage of the market. So we got in our community specifically, we got to learn how to take advantage of market dynamics like our counterparts do. And so I want to ask you, especially Patrick, on your thoughts of that. So I, I agree exactly what you said, Cedric, especially about the education standpoint. That is one of the reasons why, you know, I have a series that I do. I have a series called the Launcher Learning Circle. And what that is, is is coined to not only help investors how to get involved in the real estate market, but it's really helped them go and really buy the block, really going into certain areas and put homeowners in some of these houses and really transform the community, not necessarily displace the community. Um, it also works on the high-end market because a lot of our counterparts are going into some of these higher-end areas that I do development in, and we're bringing more people of color into some of those areas where we traditionally wouldn't be. Um, and we're putting these high-end homes there, and we're coming into that area and really putting in a nice product of homeowners and not necessarily just investors. So there's ways to battle gentrification, but education is the number one thing to really educate not only the, the buyers that are coming into the area, but also to educate the homeowners that are already there and how they can actually stay in their home, how they can buy the home that they're living in that they may be renting. How do we improve the community from a, um, a retail and commercial standpoint? It's really education all the way around the board. Right. And now I want to open up the conversation about Atlanta, right? So we know Atlanta is a hot market. But it's, there's a couple uh, regions that people want to really know a lot more about. And so one of which is first starting out with you, Cedric, is uh, the West Side. And so the West Side is, is in the news a lot. So what's been going on on the West Side of Atlanta and what should people be aware of? Well, obviously, the campus of Microsoft is coming soon. I don't, don't, don't know when. Uh, but the West Side of Atlanta is it's really picked up steam. Let's kind of give you a little history lesson of the West Side of Atlanta. Historically, the West Side of, of Atlanta has been basically an un, underserved community, uh, underserved black community for a very long time. Um, you know, drugs, gangs, you name it. That's, that's been the history of the West Side of Atlanta. Uh, but prior to that, if you ask Dallas, if Dallas was here, he would tell you he grew up in that community um, and it was a thriving community at that time when he was when he grew up there and it was separated by the railroad tracks and if on one side of the railroad tracks was black folks on the other side it was white folks so it was all it was always a segregated community um, over time you know you had that white flight and all that stuff happened so what you have now is a resurgence and I call it a, a, a correction not really a resurgence because if you really think about real estate, right, the first thing they teach you in real estate, what's the number one thing in real estate? is location, location, location. So I think we're getting back to real estate fundamentals. So that's first of all, if you look at the location of West Atlanta, West End, just where, the, where, it, where it's located, it's, it's prime real estate. It's, it's prime real estate. And so uh, you've had folks that bought there in the 90s and 2000s betting that eventually people are going to see the value in this location. And that's what you're seeing right now. So that's what Microsoft sees. That's what a lot of companies see. You see uh, Midtown has really exploded, right? And, and, and there's only so much you can put in a, in a particular market, right? So now you got to expand. 
So now we're pushing, now we got this new thing called West Midtown. I ain't, I ain't never heard of West Midtown in my entire life <laughs> until like three years ago. I never heard, I never knew there was a West Midtown. I just knew it was a Midtown. So now there's a West Midtown. And that's part of that whole change in the narrative thing that's happening. So as West Midtown, West Midtown develops, it's, everything's gonna push. And I think I said this in the last podcast as well, um, uh, the late, great Herman Russell made the statement. Um, he said, uh, buy it when it's ugly, in the inevitable path of growth. Buy it when it's ugly in the inevitable path of growth. If you do that, you'll never lose. And that's what's happening on the west side. Um, obviously, there's a lot of uh, prices have, have, have increased in the area, but I th I'm thankful to the West Side Future Fund and Arthur Blank Foundation for what they did when uh, Mercedes-Benz got there. There's some, there's some stuff, still th things there that people don't necessarily agree with, but I think in the long run, it will be good for everybody. They, they put a lot of programs in, in place to get people jobs. Because the real issue, the real issue is money. Let's just cut to the chase. The real issue is money. Uh, it's, it's, it's not housing, it's not any of that. It's money, because if people have money, then at the end of the day, they can, they can, make, they can make better decisions. Money in the mindset. M money in the mindset, you know, and, and it goes back to what we said earlier, financial literacy and education. Because we gotta figure out how to get people paid and make, get people good paying jobs, and, and not just jobs, learn how, people, how to make money themselves. And real estate is a way to do that. And it, it's, it, people do it all the time. Um, so, you know, that's your question about the West. I'm getting out of track a little bit. But it's going to grow. I mean, it's going to continue to grow. Um, it's, it's a hot market right now. Um, the Atlanta Beltline has really transformed Atlanta um, as, as they've developed that Beltline um, because traffic's been an issue for, for quite some time. And, gi and giving people alternate modes of transportation around this Beltline, it's just it just it just makes a lot of sense going into the next ten ne the next couple of decades, where will, what's going to going to look like, right? And I think that Beltline is really going to be the catalyst of what we're going to see. Okay. And I'm open for both of you all. Um, what have you guys been seeing on the west side or other parts of Atlanta as well? So I got two areas that I really concentrate in. Um, the North Decatur area is where I really uh, see a huge resurgence. Um, Emory Healthcare has done quite a few purchases. Um, they've taken over um, DeKalb Medical, and with that, you see an abundance of people flooding to a already thriving area. Um, but you have a lot of infrastructure. I, I look at it as in terms of infrastructure, in terms of how areas grow or thrive. Part of the problem that we find in some of our areas that are not doing so well is the lack of infrastructure, lack of you know community services, lack of um, proper schools, and so and then retail. You know, a lot of times when people go and look at. Um, places to go shop, you know, the, the type of grocery stores. And that's where I do a lot of my development is, is that I follow certain chains. I follow the Home Depots, the Lowe's, I follow the Walmarts, I follow um, the Publix, things of that nature, I follow the Targets. And that's how I really determine where I wanna do development at. Um, but some of the areas in the south of the city is lacking of that. And so as we start to, you know, work with you guys in terms of putting you know more commercial infrastructure in those areas we'll start to see those areas thrive because like you said you know once you have an abundance of people in one area you have to expand somewhere so why not do it you know in certain areas that are underserved well 
my counterpart schedules pretty much answered everything. Um, but I mean, I, I, I currently live on the, the, the west side and have an investment property on the west side. And just from, I didn't grow up in Atlanta, I grew up in Clayton County, um, but I went to school, you know, at Georgia State. And so just seeing how Atlanta's transformed and like you mentioned, you know, now, you know, just going out to, you know, Sandy Springs and to, to the west end, you know, seeing modern, you know, apartment homes now in the West End, you know, seeing the retail, um, you know, seeing a lot of different uh, communities. So definitely, definitely going to see an uptick um, even near the Bankhead area. You know, I was driving near, well, Donald eat homes now, um, uh, you know, uh, I mean, Hollowell, excuse me. Um, I was in the Bankhead area and, you know, starting to see modern built apartment homes. You know, 10 years ago, who would have thought that? You know what I mean? Who would have thought, as you mentioned before, gangs, drugs infested, um, just really a lot of low income communities. And now, so we're starting to see a change, right? And as you mentioned before, we can't compete with these institutional investors, with these hedge funds who literally can come in and literally not only buy the block, but buy miles and miles and miles of the blocks and they're paying for it in cash. Right. Um, and then going back to that, that lack of education where if someone says here, I'll give you a hundred thousand dollars for your house. And in your mind, you think, oh, my gosh, I'm rich. But really, you don't. you like that education. You don't realize that if you would keep on, if you would hold on to that house years from now, your house would be worth 10 times more. So literally, you take the cash, you run and go where and then you spend it all, you know, within a certain time frame. And you're 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 losing equity. You're you're not able to 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 transfer that wealth, you know, to your family and future generations. So uh, I definitely agree with the lack of of education. And because even if you bring in communities, I've seen communities where they do as much as they possibly can to help the communities to help get them jobs, to help them get the education, but it goes with the mindset. They have to be able to receive it. They have to be able to think of abundance. They have to be able to think outside of what their, what their, 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 their normalcy. Like it's just, a, it's, sometimes it's a, a mindset of poverty and they can't see any way out of it. So we, we can give them all the tools and resources and everything we can, but until we able to have that conversation and really change that mindset and keep it within the community, that's when we go from there. And I'll add one other point from a, from a corporate real estate standpoint uh, and working with Microsoft on, on the Microsoft project, which we're still working on. One of the things that we do as a firm and we're talking to com companies like Microsoft and others that, are, that want to invest uh, into co communities like West Atlanta, uh, and I, and text, I take my hat out to Microsoft and their approach, they took a community approach first verse, versus this is what we're going to do, just, we, just what we want. They said, no, we want to listen to community first. So what they did was they went out and met with the Grove Park Foundation, they met with the West Our Future Fund. They, were, they met with folks at the city, the communities, that, and they're, this is, these are ongoing conversations. Atlanta Police Foundation, Atlanta Fire Rescue, they want to know what's making the city work and how can we make an impact and, and create jobs and really impact the community, not just come in here and just be a tenant. Um, we're not just trying to be a tenant. We want to be a, a real player. And so that's a, that's a mind shift in itself from a corporate standpoint. 
uh, of how companies make decisions going forward. Same thing exercise we're doing with Airbnb. They want to make an impact. They don't want to just come in and be a tenant in, in, in the city and, and, and just have some jobs. They want to come in like, no, we want to know about the community. How can we support it? What are the needs of the community? Because that's really, at the end of the day, the business community is, one of, is, a, is a really a big solver to the gentrification issue. If you get these big companies, big corporations with large pockets to make the necessary investments and not just look at just their their silos and they can actually impact they can impact more and so that is the discussions that we're having on, on, on an ongoing basis and that's what's happening on the west side of Atlanta right and so as we're wrapping up I have one question I ask all of you all um, and just want to make sure it, there's always something I want to ask all of my guests I'm going to ask you now which is what is one thing about your industry that people misconstrue that you would like to correct huh. well hotels is actually former real estate a lot of people don't realize that like they don't like people don't think like it's mind-boggling like people don't think that they can actually own a hotel so i get a lot a lot of african-americans they're like wait you can own a hotel i'm like yeah it's a it's an operating business sitting on real estate um so it is a part of commercial real estate is one of the uh the the sectors I call them food groups. you call them what food groups food groups food groups of commercial real estate Oh, okay, I thought you were going to say retail. Some people call it retail. But yes, yeah, so that's a misconception. A lot of people don't realize that. So when they think about expanding or diversifying their, their real estate portfolio, some people, they think, you know, they think of, you know, uh, multifamily and office and mixed use, but they forget to add um, hotels to their, to, to, to their uh, real estate portfolio. Uh, one thing I would like to, that people misconstrue, uh, with commercial real estate, we don't sell houses. I can't tell you how many times people say, oh yeah, Tito, I'll the company, you guys, so you guys do what again? Uh, you sell houses, do housing development? We do not do any housing at all, just office, industrial, and land, and we represent corporations. That's the biggest uh, thing I would like to correct. <laughs> uh, one thing I'd like to correct is that people think that you know, development or, you know, real estate is, is easy to do and you don't have to work. <laughs> um, people got to understand that it's just like if you want to leave your nine to five to get into the real estate industry, sometimes you're working more hours, you're dealing with tenants, you're dealing with, you know, contractors, you're dealing with suppliers and real estate takes a lot of work and it is not a get rich quick scenario. Yeah, it takes, it, it takes dedication, it takes time, it takes diligence, it takes being able to, you know, manage so many different aspects of the build. And so just don't get into it thinking that, hey, I got some money, I'm gonna invest in it and, you know, I'm gonna make a, a ton of more. It doesn't work that way, you know? It's, it's gonna, right. yeah, <laughs> it takes work, you know, and it takes time. Okay. And thank you all for uh, taking out your time today to talk to me about this. And I really appreciate you all. And so one of the last, the very final question I have for all of you, and this is the question I ask all my guests, I'm going to ask you now is what's making you happy? One of the things that makes me happy is to take a project and something that nobody wanted or a piece of raw land and to be able to when I turned that project over to the new homeowner and the look on their face, the appreciation that they have, it makes all of the minutia worth it. You know, because when I get into a, a project, I try to cancel out the noise, I get heads down and try to make it happen. And the delivery is one of the things that really, really intrigues me. 
and I like to hustle and bustle. You know, I'm, I'm from California, so we're used to the fast pace. So, you know, I call it organized chaos. Um, but I, I really like, you know, the delivery portion at the end, the reveal. What makes me happy? Um, my family makes me happy, and not just my at-home family, uh, my work family. You know, we got we got a group of just young folks that look like me, uh, and I, I I see when I see them kind of getting it and doing things, uh, it, it it makes me really happy to see someone else being successful uh, at, at what at, at this thing called commercial real estate because you know it it took a lot of ups and downs and t you know a lot of fails and we were just talking about this before we did this that you know it took a lot to get where I'm at and, and 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 if I'm able to kind of bring up someone else and teach them kind of I want to be able to pour into someone else that makes me happy to see what they got it you know they're they're taking what I'm saying and they're doing it so that makes me happy yeah, real, real quick. Yeah. another component that you know really gives me joy with you know what I do it kind of piggybacks yeah. off of what you have because you know we have a huge educational component that's tied to you know my company and what I found is, is there are a lot of people that get involved in real estate that they don't really have somebody to talk to, they don't have a mentor, they don't have anybody that can help tell them the mistakes that they're making so they can learn from my mistakes. And so with our learning series, our masterclass that we do, it allows me to be able to take somebody up underneath my wing and really say, hey, listen, this is where I went wrong. And this is how you can make sure you avoid that. I do that, especially with our college programs that we we started. Um, we've taken in some interns from HBCUs, and my goal is to really train a lot of the HBCUs from a real estate perspective um, and train a lot of the students. So I have people coming in from Tuskegee um, and other universities that are trying to get into the real estate space and to see that they are taking it all in and they're really absorbing it that they're going to be a leg up when they get out here to the workforce because one of the things that i try to tell people is our students are no longer competing amongst their peers right now they're competing against the rest of the world so how do we train up our youth in order to be able to have a leg to stand on and so that's one of the things that i really take pride in yeah, yeah, so. yeah, thank you thank you well besides my two-year-old son he makes me really happy but really um what really makes me happy and brings me so much joy so i have a goal this year to create 221 hotel owners and investors and so far probably created about 10 to 12 investors no about close to 13 investors so far and i'm working on something that'll help me get to my goal so the fact that people now they're coming up to me they're reaching out to me or contacting me and they're saying because of you, I can now own a hotel. I wanted to own a hotel, but I didn't know that it was possible. I didn't see anybody who looked like me to own a hotel. I didn't see a hotel owner who was, who was approachable. So that brings me joy and it lights a fire. And I've realized that what I'm doing is larger than me. Right, um, I'm bringing attention to, because right now there's what, less than one or two percent of the, the hotels in the United States are owned by African Americans. And so my goal is to help change that and to help increase that percentage. So that's what makes me happy, that people are actually investing, that people are actually looking to diversify their portfolio and they're looking to create um, wealth for themselves, but create generational wealth for their family. Um, and I'm glad that I'm able to provide education 
um, uh, for those folks who are looking to diversify. So that way, because my goal is to help people to become successful hotel owners. I just don't want people to become investors of hotel. I want them to become successful and so and profitable, right? That's the goal. Um, so the fact that people are taking the education, they're learning, and they're actually investing and they're making the right decisions and taking on the right investments and they're they're able to see so when i hear years 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 from now that they actually either owned or invested that's just bringing me um, a lot of joy and it's making me feel like that my, my 14 years of hard work tears and sweat and pain and suffering um it's all worth it if i can just get one person one one african-american uh male or female to become a hotel owner Right. And thank you all once again. And thank you uh, for tuning in today. This is the Neighborhood Watch Podcast. Please like and review wherever you listened or heard this podcast. And uh, once again, I want to give a special shout out to my guests today for coming out and taking out time to talk. And I'll have links in the show notes about how uh, to get in contact with them as well as what firms that they represent. And so thank you once again. Please like and subscribe wherever you heard this podcast.